This week I learned that my father had died. And so I want to change the topic of my Dharma talk to talk a little about my process and my journey around our relationship and loss and death and the Dharma. I thought actually that perhaps I wouldn't come up to Seattle and I thought about just going home because I learned that he died right before I a retreat at Spirit Rock and um, I thought of not doing that one as well. But both times in really considering it, um, it felt right to come up here, to be here with you all tonight, and then to do the retreat that we're doing afterwards um, at Lake Crescent. And it wasn't actually an easy decision. But it was a decision that I came to, and as I look at it, it was because I feel coming together and searching for ways to love and to love with integrity is really the heart of this practice, coming together and finding for ourselves, not what I say or any teacher says, but for ourselves, what really is true for us? What really is the truth is the heart of the practice. And I think it was my father's inability to find those ways that created so much suffering for him and for me in my relationship with him and in our family. And so it feels in a way to be doing what we're doing is a tremendous gift and a gift that I can give him because it takes the best of him and carries it on. And the best of him, I think like the best of all of us, is that we truly do want to love. You know, each one of us here I know truly wants to love, truly wants to love in an open-hearted way, in a way that is free of judgment, in a way that is free of defensiveness, in a way that is free of control and manipulation. And I know that it's true to say that, like my father, each one of us actually wants to be true, true to ourselves, true to the best of our relationships and our work in the world. And it's probably also true to say that each one of us here also has created a tremendous amount of suffering for ourselves that we have created places where we have held on, 
where we have lied, where we have defended ourselves, even though we know that there was the possibility of not. And we know the pain of that. Each one of us knows the pain of that. And it's probably because of that pain that we're here, too. The Buddha said that the conditions for coming to these teachings and our desire to free ourselves from suffering is suffering. And probably one of the greatest gifts my father gave me was the tremendous suffering he caused. <laughs> because it was living that and really wanting to find a different way that inspired me to search for the Dharma. And I, you know, I come from um, a family that was, was atheist. There was absolutely no spiritual practice in my family. The, the most spiritual practice we did was to go to my mother's brother on um, Passover to have a big dinner because um, that was more the cultural tradition. In, I grew up in South Africa and South Africa rather than a religious tradition. My parents were political activists and really dedicated their lives to ending apartheid in South Africa. And probably one of the other greatest gifts my father gave me was his vision of the possibility of freedom the freedom of a society in which racism w didn't play a predominant part. And he did all kinds of really courageous things. He helped um, African leaders escape jail. He would drive them in his car. He would dress them up as servants. He would dress up as a hunter, have one of these long guns that you use to shoot elephants. And they would drive across the border. And at the border, the uh, immigration patrols would look in the car, and my father would say, oh, you know, just the servant. And the immigration people would wave him on because who really cared about servants? And he did these incredible, incredible, courageous things over the years. And yet, at the same time, when it came to his intimate relationships, the love that he wanted to express so much was distorted. Was distorted because of how he felt he should be as a man. Was distorted because how he felt he should be as a father. But mostly was distorted because of the, uh, his own places of hurt, his own places where he had been wounded by his family, by his father and mother. <coughs> so in this process of grieving for my father, it hasn't just been for his loss, the loss of the parts that have been beautiful and that he's given me and that I really feel I've inherited as his daughter and that I am his daughter. But most of the grieving I find has been for what didn't happen, for the times when there wasn't an undistorted love, for the times 
when we weren't really able to connect honestly and truly because of the defenses that were there. And so I wanted to talk about that part of ourselves because the reality of our lives is that we've all been hurt. That's the reality of our lives, that we've all been hurt, sometimes very, very deeply, and sometimes over and over again. The repercussions of that, the repercussions of the pain that we carry is that if we don't know how to hold it in our lives, that we defend ourselves and we shut down our hearts, not only to ourselves, but to others so that our love becomes distorted. And that often what we find is abuse in our relationships, a little or sometimes a lot. These teachings actually go to the very heart of this dynamic. These teachings say, we are hurt. We are hurt. That the very nature of life, the very nature of life is that it's imperfect and that we will hurt each other that actually we can't rely on each other not to hurt each other because that's not how it works. And at the same time, there is a way to hold our lives and to live our lives so that we don't keep repeating in habitual ways that hurting. There is a way to live our lives, the Buddha said, that actually more and more purifies our hearts and our minds. And he said that is possible for each of us, no matter how much we've been hurt, and actually no matter how defended we are. That at any point, if we want to, we can start the process of opening. I heard that my dad died and I wasn't at home. And I was staying with my sister. And I watched all these different things come up. First, of really wanting to control my environment. It's like, oh my God, I was staying with my sister in her living room and that she really didn't have any space. She shares bringing up a child and her her, uh, the co-parent was sick, so she had her daughter, Keto, who is this very rambunctious three-year-old. And so Keto and I were sharing the living room space, and I was like dying for quiet, and I was dying to have my own space and process my feelings. And 
I couldn't get it. And then on top of it, I didn't have my own car, so I couldn't drive to the places that if I was at home, I'd drive to. Like, I would drive to the YMCA and work out, or I would drive to the local park and go jogging or walking. <laughs> you know, and I would watch this, this, this um, place of frustration and this place of, like, in, in my pain, wanting to, you know, control my environment. <laughs> and then it was so wonderful to fall back on the Buddha's teaching, which is that it's imperfect. It's imperfect. Sometimes it is not how you want it. And this was not how I wanted it. I mean, no one ever wanted to choose the time to grieve over death. But, you know, if we could choose it, it would be so nice to have it in a place that would be the best, best place to grieve, you know. And it wasn't happening for me. And then on top of it, it was freezing cold in California, and I always looked forward to it being warm, and it was freezing cold and rainy, and I didn't have enough clothes. And it was so great to understand this is how it is sometimes. It's not because I'm not in control. It's just that sometimes it's imperfect, you know? And it is such a beautiful practice to hold the imperfection that happens both in our lives, around us in our external lives, and also inside of our lives. And it is that place of holding the imperfection that has allowed me to open my heart fully to my father and to hold the pain that was part of our relationship. Because I know that it's imperfect, that that is just the nature of it. And because it's a, a law or the attribute of life, it means it's not personal. I don't have to take what he did to me as a personal statement about myself, but rather as an expression of the imperfection of our lives and what happens when we're not living in wisdom. What happens when we're not living in that place of unity, of open-heartedness? So holding, holding the imperfection both in the process I'm right in, and that it even, it even went to, uh, Ruby came sweetly to pick me up in the airport, and I said to her, oh, let's go and be by water, because it, it being by water for me feels very healing. And then we got into this terrible traffic, and we were in a car for the hour, and it was hot, and there were all these fumes, and my throat was sore, and I was getting sick. And it was just the same thing. It was imperfection, you know? <laughs> Holding the place that feels like a hurt when it's held in the understanding of imperfection, of the imperfection of life, depersonalizes it and actually creates the sense in our hearts of being able to open and honor ourselves and carry ourselves with dignity, even though it feels at the same time as though our hearts are hurting. So that we're not being defined by that place of hurt, but that we're creating a container to hold it. 
it means we're challenged in very deep ways to look at the places where we define ourselves according to our hurt. Because even though my father actually was a tremendously courageous person and a, a wonderful activist, and actually very successful in what he did professionally, I think at the very bottom or the fountain of why he was so hurting himself was because he, he really hated himself. He really didn't think he was good enough. And he didn't think he was good enough because of the pain he was carrying, because of that place inside of himself that felt a failure because he was hurting so much because there was no way he could hold himself in pain with his imperfections and at the same time honor himself and respect himself. And it feels to me that really that's our challenge, that our challenge is finding ways to live with what is so difficult and at the same time to come to ways of honoring ourselves and respecting ourselves. Because the Buddha said, and he said it in the first refuge, that we are always deserving. No matter what we've done, we are always deserving of our love. No matter what we have done, we are always deserving of our love. We are always deserving of that sense of carrying ourselves as honorable, as beautiful. What is it? What is it that holds us? What is it that holds us in places where we define ourselves in negative ways? What is it that makes us defend ourselves against our heart opening or against another? What I why is it so hard when we've had a fight to say, I'm sorry, even if we think it's the other person's fault? Even when we feel totally righteous and justified in our position, <laughs> What is it that we're defending? Because the vision of this practice is a vision that actually is about letting go of self-defense. Not, not in the, the, the current term of, of, of um, defending ourselves against attackers, but in that place of armoring our hearts, of defending ourselves, of thinking we have to be right and defending that rightness. What is it? Because this practice invites us to a vision of happiness that does not include that kind of self-defense. And the vision of happiness is a vision that 
each one of us can manifest as long as we're human beings, as long as we're healthy enough to practice. We have that possibility to practice and live in an open-hearted way, which actually brings about the qualities that free us from all suffering, that bring about the conditions for a happiness that doesn't stop. This practice invites us over and over again to reflect that it actually is possible to train ourselves to live our lives in a way that over and over again is dedicated to an open-heartedness, to a renunciation, to a letting go that actually doesn't include self-defense. The place of defending ourselves, of situating ourselves in a way in which we say, I'm right and I'm shutting down my heart to you or I'm rejecting you because I am right. What is that dynamic? Because that's the dynamic it feels like that place where we feel like we have to defend ourselves is a dynamic that really plays itself out over and over again, especially in our intimate relationships. Isn't that true? What is it? Is it the truth? What's it founded on? What's the idea, what's the belief that each one of us carries that feeds that dynamic in our lives so that we are prepared to hurt ourselves and others? What is it? It seems worth exploring, doesn't it? <laughs> The, 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 um, the Buddha talked about delusion and he talked about wisdom and he said that delusion has the capacity to blind ourselves. And I think this dynamic is a beautiful example of delusion, that it actually blinds ourselves to the truth of what's happening that the capacity of delusion makes an object more attractive than it really is. In this case, defending our rightness. One of the, one of the giveaways of delusion, that when we think to ourselves, am I being skillful, am I being wise, or am I not, is that there's a sense not only of being shut down, but that we actually feel closed-hearted, that we are actually in some way armoring ourselves. That's one of the characteristics of delusion. The other is seeing the permanent in the impermanent. So that whatever we think we're in the middle of, we think it's going to last forever and we have to take our stand. We don't see it as part of a process, that there's all the space 
to keep on in some kind of negotiation or openness. The other, one of the characteristics of delusion is thinking that there is something worth defending. <laughs> I talk about this dynamic so much because I feel like one of the places where my father and I locked in over and over again was in this dynamic of self-defense. It felt like we were in a power battle over and over again. And it was extraordinarily painful. He couldn't extricate himself, and certainly as a teenager and a young adult, I didn't know how to either. We fought, we screamed, he was violent. And it was because he thought that was love. He thought that was love. One of the beautiful qualities of this practice is that it asks us to investigate, just to be present and to investigate what's happening to us over and over again. It's not saying this is right and this is wrong. There is, there is no Ten Commandments in the Buddha's teaching. There is the invitation to investigate what's happening and whether it brings about a reduction of suffering, whether our behavior brings about an open-heartedness, whether how we are brings about happiness, or whether it brings suffering and pain. That's all. Not wrong or right, not good or bad, just, is this skillful? Is this really how I want to live my life? And if it isn't, if I really have a vision of open-heartedness and love, how can I manifest that? How can I manifest that so that I actually experience happiness in the process rather than anger and recrimination and defense? No, I know that we don't do that all the time, but we might do it some of the time. And these teachings say, look and see for yourself what actually brings happiness and what actually brings suffering. And then it says, we each have the capacity to let go of what brings us suffering, that we have that capacity, just even just as an intention just as the intention. I can't even do it now because I'm so caught, but may I free myself from this dynamic in the future. We have that capacity, and that's the beauty. That is the beauty of being a human being.
is that we have the capacity to be pay attention and to see what we're doing, and we have the capacity once we see it to align ourselves with what is healing, with what is loving, and with what is non-harming. And the very source of that is our intention. Do we really want to do it differently? Because if we do, if we want to love in a way that continually builds the conditions for happiness for ourselves and for others, then the starting place is to want to do that. Just that. Just to want to do it. It is the source of our future, that intention to bring about healing. And then the second part of it is to begin to actively refrain from doing what is harmful, to actually make a commitment by wanting to, to refrain from doing what is harmful. Not easy. And we know if it, would, if it was easy, then all of us would be arahants. We would be freed already. Free. I'm free. <laughs> but possible. Refraining from doing what is harmful. And we each know it. We know those places where we contract and defend. We know it. The healing comes from wanting it to be different and then from calling in the energy and effort to start to refrain from doing it. In the beginning, that might look like it takes, in, if we have a fight with someone, usually it takes three days and we don't talk to them or we don't like them. And it might be that it goes down to two days. Two days. <laughs> I used to be pretty good at holding out for three. <laughs> I, can't remember, I can't remember what happened, but something happened. Um, I think I was on a self-retreat at home for uh, six weeks, and someone did something. I don't know, and I don't know if you've all noticed, but when you're on a retreat, sometimes you become very sensitive. Someone did something. I can't remember what it was. And, and I just, maybe I had asked people not to wash clothes, wash, do the washing machine late at night, because it was so noisy during the day, I really counted on it being quiet at nighttime, you know, and someone was doing their laundry at 12 midnight and something, I don't know, or something. And I watched my mind, you know, I just watched it go into this thing, and I was going to move out, and that was it, and you know, the, you know, the usual thing that we go into. You know, and I saw how seductive it was, how seductive it was to create the story to justify my feelings and to defend my feelings, you know. And then at some point, it just was so clear. You can hold on to this or you can let go. You have to let go once. And we know that you have to keep letting go because it comes up and you have to let go. And it comes up and you have to let go. Well, I managed to let go by the morning. I mean, really, let go, you know. When I woke up in the morning, I felt let go. I consider that a story of success three days to one night. And that's the process. And it's not, it's not that we define ourselves according to some perfect picture of this is how open-hearted means. It means we start where we are, and we keep honoring 
the intention and the effort. We just honor and say, this is how long it takes me. This is my mat right now. But I really want to honor my intention and my effort to open my heart and to live in a way that refrains from harming, to live in a way where my love isn't distorted, but where my love actually holds another human being in love. May we each be able to love in this way. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.